You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Revolt of the Machines by Noah Schachner and Arthur L. Zagat, Part 3. I nodded assent, though a bit seemed startled. Many time had Keston and I speculated on the danger of an avalanche at this point, and wondered why the station had been built in such an exposed place. Once indeed we had ventured to suggest to the Arista Council the advisability of removing the central control to some other point, but the cold silence that greeted our diffidence advice deterred us from further pursuit of the subject. Now you know as well as I, Keston resumed. That a glacier is merely a huge river of ice, and though solid partakes of some of qualities of freely flowing waters. As a matter of fact, glaciers do flow, because the tremendous pressure at the bottom lowers the melting point of ice to such a degree that the ice actually liquefies and flows along. I followed him eagerly in these elementary statements, trying to glimpse what he was driving at, but Abbott's brute features were fixed in a blank stare. This glacier does move, we've measured it a matter of an inch or two a day, if, however, Kesson's voice took a, on a deeper note. We can manage to hasten that process, the glacier will overwhelm the countryside. He paused, and that gave me a chance to interpose some objection. But hold a moment. In the first place, it is an absolute impossibility with the means at our command, or even with every appliance, to melt the face of the whole northern glacier. In the second place, even if we could, the whole world would be overwhelmed, and then where would we be? Kesson looked at me a trivial scornfully. Who said we were going to melt the entire glacier? Remember I spoke only of the place of the overhang, set that in motion, and we don't have to worry about the problem any further. Why not? I inquired incredulously. Suppose you do wipe out all the machines in this particular vicinity. Won't there be tremendous numbers left all through the equatorial belt? Of course, he explained patiently. And what if they are? What are all these machines but inanimate mechanisms, things of metal and rubber and quartz? What makes them the monster they have become? I smote my forehead in anger. What a fool! Now I see it. It's the master machines you are after. Exactly, he smilingly agreed. Overwhelm, destroy this devilish creature of mine with its unhuman intelligence, and the machines are what they were before, merely obedient slaves. I pondered that at moment. And how, may us, are you going to force this old glacier to move? His face clouded. That's the trouble. Up on the ice, I was working on that problem and had managed secretly to rig up a contrivance that would have done the trick. But we can't go back for it. That way is blocked, he mused half to himself. If only we could lay our hands on a solar disintegrating machine, that difficulty would be solved. At the name, Abbott's face had, had been a study in blank incomprehension. Lit up. Solar disintegrating machine? He inquired. Why, there's one station not more than a few hundred yards away from here. This area, 2RX, was my sector, you know. Of course, of course, shouted Kesson. I'd quite forgotten. The very thing, you're not half bad, Abbott. If you'd only stop trying to rely on brute strength instead of brains, he concluded. 
Abud said nothing, but I noticed a quick flash of hatred that passed in an instant, leaving a blank countenance. I thought to myself, You'll bear watching, my fine fellow. I don't trust you at all. Cason was speaking. We'll have to wait until nightfall. The master machines won't expect us down at the base, so I'm positive the search ray won't be focused along the ground. We'll sneak to the machines, smash it visor and the radio unit so it won't give the alarm and haul it back. Then I'll show you what next to be done. Night came at last, leaden-footed, though we were burning with impatience. Very softly we crawled out of the cave, three shadows. Unfortunately, there was no moon. The great glacier loomed ominously above us, dimly white. Hide overhead hovered the green signal lights of the machine's planes. Their search ray focused in blinding glares on the rim of the upper eyes. It did not take us long to find the dark bulk of the instigator. It was a squat cylinder, for all the world like a huge boiler. At one end, there upended a periscope arrangement which broadened out to a funnel. In the funnel was a very powerful lens cut to special measurements. The light of the sun, or any light for that matter, was concentrated through the lens onto a series of photoelectric cells composed of an alloy of selenium and a far more delicate element, elenium. A high-tension current was there created of such powerful intensity that it disintegrated the atoms of every element except osmium and indium into their constituent electrons. Consequently, the interior as well as the long-slit nozzle orifice at the other end were made of these resistant metals. Through a special process, the tremendously powerful current was forced through the wide-angled nozzle in the spreading tin plate ray that sheared through earth and rock and metals as if they were butter. Such was the machines we were after. It was but the work of a few seconds to smash the delicate television and sonar boxes placed on the top of every machine. Now we were sure no warning could be given the master machines as it sat in its metallic cunning at the control board, ceaselessly receiving its messages from the area apparatus focused above it. Quietly, very quietly, we trundled the precious instruments along on its wheelbase. The green lights dotted the sky above, the search ray were firmly set on the rim. At last, without any untoward alarm, we reached the welcome shelter of the base. But, not as I had expected, back to our tunnel. On the contrary, Keston, who had directed the party, had led us almost a quarter mile away. I looked up again and understood. The great overhang of the glacier was directly above us. Without a word, with hardly a sound, we trundled the instigator into a natural niche we found in the icy surface. It was almost completely hidden, only the funnel with its lens protruded into the open. The nozzle orifice was pointing directly at the interior of the ice pack. Now everything is set properly, Kasson remarked with satisfaction as he straightened up from adjusting the various control of the machine. When the first ray of the morning sun strikes the lens, the instigator will start working. It will shear through a layer of ice over a radius of at least a mile. That huge crevasse, coupled with the terrific heat and the pressure from the mountain of ice above, will start the whole glacier moving, or I'll be very much mistaken. Come, let us get back to our shelter before the alarm is given. 
As he started to move, a dark bulk loomed ominously in front of us. Abbott, his voice was harsh, forbidding. Do you mean to say nothing further is to be done here? That the disintegrator will work without any attention? This is just what I said, Kasson replied, somewhat surprised. Step aside, Abbott, and let us go. It is dangerous to remain here. But Abbott made no move to comply. Instead, he thrust back his great shaggy hat and gave in to a resounding laugh. <laughs> My fine friends, so you were the brainy one, eh? And Abbott, the obedient Dulwit again, how nicely you've been fooled. I waited until you accommodatingly evolved the plan to reconquer the world and put it into the effect. Now that you've done so, I've no further need for you. The voice that heavily tried to be mocking now snarled. You poor fools, don't you know that with you out of the way, I, Abbott, will be the lord of the world? Those prolats up there know better than to disobey me. Do you mean you intend to kill us? Kasson asked incredulously. So you've actually grasped the idea was the sarcastic retort. Meanwhile, I was gradually aging to the side, my hand reaching for the bone knife in my bosom. Abbott saw my movement. No, you don't, he roared and sprang for me, his long, gleaming knife uplift. I tugged desperately at my weapon, but it was entangled in the raid force. In a moment, he was on top of me. Involuntarily, I raised my arm to ward off the threatened blow, raging my despair in my heart. The point fell, but Kasson struck at the savage arm with all his might, deflecting the blade just in time. It seared my shoulder like a red-hot iron, and in the next instant, all three of us were rolling, kicking, snarling trio of animals. We fought desperately in the dark. There were no rules of the game. Biting, gogging, kicking, everything went. Keston and I, weakened as we were from long starvation and the biting cold, were no match for our powerful, huge muscle opponent, well clad and well nourished as he was. Though we fought with the strength of despair, a violent blow from his huge fist knocked Keston out of the fight. Hairy fingers grasped my throat. I'll break your neck for you. He snarled, and his hands tightened. I struggled weakly, but I was helpless. I could just see his hateful face grinning at my contortions. I was passing out, slowly, horribly. Kesson was still motionless. Colored lights danced before my eyes, little spots that flared and died out in crashing blackness. Then the whole world leaped into flaming white, so that my eyeballs hurt in the dim recesses of my pain-swept mind. I thought that strangulation must end like this. The brightness held dazzlingly. But suddenly, a fiercest pain swept into my consciousness. The pain of gasping breath forcing air through tortured gullets into suffocating lungs. I struggled up into the fierce illumination. From a sitting position, I saw Abbott, now clearly visible as in midday, craning his head way back. I looked too, and in spite of my stabbing gasp for air, jumped to my feet. The search ray from the scout planes were focused directly on us. I knew what that meant. The sight of us was even the being cast upon the two or X visor screens in the central control station. 
The devilish master machine was even then manipulating the proper buttons. We had not a second to lose. My strangled throat hurt horribly, but I managed a hoarse yell. Run! And I tottered to where Keston yet lay, bathed in the deadly illumination, unmoving. There was a snarl of animal fear from Abbott, and he started to run, wildly, with never a backward glance at us. Even in my own fear, expecting each instant the crash of terminite about me, I managed to hurl a last word at the feeling figure. Coward! That relieved my feelings considerably. I tottered over and tugged at Kasten. He was limp. I looked up. Hundreds of plants were converging overhead. The night was a crisscross of stabbing search rays. I lift my friend and slung him across my shoulder. Every exertion, every move was accompanied by excruciating agony, but I persevered. Abbott was already halfway to the tunnel, running like mad. Then what I had dreaded happened. There came a swoosh through the night, a dull thud, a blinding flash and a roar that paled the search ray into insignificance. The first terminite bomb had been dropped. For a moment, the landscape was filled with flying rocks and huge chunks of ice. When the great clouds of violently upthrown earth had settled, there was no sign of Abbott. He had been directly in the path of the explosion. Staggering under my load, I headed as close to the ice pack as I could. There was no safety out in the open. I groaned heavily past the disintegrator, whose very existence I had forgotten in the crash of events. A sizzling hum, a thin eddy of steam, halted me in my tracks. I stared, the machines was working. Even as I watched, a great wedge was momentarily being driven further and further into the ice. A great fan-shaped wedge, clouds of steam billowed up, growing thicker and heavier. A rushing stream of unleashed water was lapping at my feet. I was bewildered, frankly so. What had started the disintegrate of the in the dead of night? Of course! I shouted exultantly to the limb body on my shoulder. For a search ray was fixed steadily on the funnel. There it was. From that blinding light, the machine was getting the energy it needed. If only the visor did not disclose that little bit of metal to the unwinking master machines. I looked again and took heart. It was almost undistinguishable against the dazzling blur of ice and the fierce white light. If those rays held, the salvation of the world was assured. There was only way to do it. I shrunk at my own thoughts. Yet there was no alternative. It must be done. I was hidden from the rays under a projection of ice. Terminite bombs were dropping methodically over a rapidly devastated sector with methodically regularity. Sooner or later, the master machine would feel that we were exterminated, and the search rays switch off. That would mean that the disintegrator would cease working, and the whole plan fall through. In the morning light, the sector signaling apparatus at the first sign of renewed activity would give warning, and the unhuman thing of metal at the controls would discover and wreck our last hope. No. I must walk boldly into the bombed area and discover myself as alive in the visor of the planes and make them continue to bomb and throw their search ray on the scarred plane. That means the disintegrator will receive the vital light. 
but how about Keston? I couldn't leave him there on the ground motionless while I deserted him, nor could I take him with me. I was prepared to take my chance with almost certain death, but I could not trivel with his life so. I was in an agony of indecision. Just then the form of my aching shoulder steered side struggled a bit and suddenly slid down to a standing position. Kesson swayed unsteadily a moment, straightened, looked about him in amazement. What's happening here? he demanded. Why, you old war horse, I shouted in my relief. I thought you were out of the pictures completely. Not me, he answered indignantly. I'm all right, but you haven't answered my question. A terminite bomb exploded not so far away from where we stood. I ducked involuntarily, Keston doing likewise. There's the answer, I grinned, and a rather neat one too, but I'll explain. In a few words, I sketched what had happened and show him the disintegrator spreading its deadly wave of destruction. By now, there was a torrent enveloping us up to our knees. We would have to move soon or be drowned in the slowly rising water. Then, hesitatingly, I told him of my scheme to keep the search ray in action. His lean face sobered, but he nodded his head bravely. Of course, that is the only way to keep them at it. You and I will start at once, in separate directions, so that if they get one, the other will continue to draw the search ray down on the plane and into the disintegrator. Not you, Keston, I dissented in alarm. Your life is too valuable. Your brain and skill will be needed to remodel the world and make it habitable for the few proletariat are left after the machines are wiped out. You are just as valuable a man as I am, he lied affectionately. No, my mind is made up. We chance this together. And to all my pleadings he was obdurate, insisting that we each take an equal risk. I gave in at last with a little choke in my throat. We shook hands with a steady grip and walked out into a glare of light on divergent path. Would I ever see my friends again? There was a pause of second as I walked on and on, came down an earth-shattering crash that flung me to the ground. The visors had caught the pictures of me. I picked myself up, bruised and sore, but otherwise unharmed. I started to run. The sky was a blast of zooming plants that hurled destruction on the land below. Far off could be heard the rumbling roar of hurrying machines, tractors, diggers, disintegrators, levers, all the mighty mobile masses of the metal that man's brain had conceived, all hurrying forward in the mass attack to seek out and destroy their creators. Obedient to the will of a master machines, immobile pressing buttons in the central control system. The night resolved itself into a weird, phantasmagoric nightmare for me. A gigantic game of hide-and-seek, in which I was it, gasping, choking, flung to earth and stunned by ear-shattering explosion, staggering up somehow, ducking to avoid being crushed beneath the ponderous threat of metal's monster that plunged uncannily for me. Sobbing loud in terror, swerving just in time from in front of a swinging crane, instinctively sidestepping just as a pale violet ray swept into nothingness all before it. I must have been delirious, for I retain only the vaguest memory of the horror. 
and all of the time the guiding searchray biased down upon the torn and shattered fields, and the disintegrator, unnoticed in the fast uproar, steadily kept up its deadly work. At last, in my delirium and terror, I heard a great rending and tearing. I looked up, and a tractor just missed me as it rolled by on swishing threads. But that one glance was enough. The ice cap was moving, flowing forward, a thousand-foot wall of ice. Great billowing clouds of steam spurts from innumerable cracks. The deed had been done. The world was safe for mankind. Summoning the last ounce of strength, I set off on a steady run for a cellar of the rock cave, to be out of the way when the final smash-up came. I was not pursued. The ponderous machines, thousands of them, were hastily forming into solid ranks directly in front of the tottering glacier wall. The master machines had seen an impending fate in its visor, and was organizing a defense. Even in my elation, I could not but feel unwilling admiration for this monstrous thing of metal and quartz, imbued with an intelligence that could think more coolly and quickly than most humans. Yet I did not stop running until I reached the cave. My heart gave a great bound. For there, peering anxiously with worn face into the groaning dawn, stood the figure of Keston, my friend whom I had never expected to see alive again. Maron, he shouted, is it you or your ghost? That very question I was about to ask you, I parried. But look, old friend, see what your genius has accomplished and is now destroying. The mountain of ice was flowing forward, gathering speed on the sway. At an invisible signal, the mass machines, thousands on thousands of them, started into action. Like shocked troops in a last desperate assault, they ground forward, a serried line that exactly parallels the threatened break, and hundred deep. This old earth of us had never witnessed so awe-inspiring a sight. They smashed into that moving wall of ice with the force of uncounted millions of tons. We could hear the groaning and straying of furiously turning machinery as they heaved. Keston and I looked at each other in amazement. The master machine was trying to hold back the mighty glacier by the sheer power of its cohorts. A wild light sprang into Keston's eyes of admiration, of regret. What a thing is this that I created, he muttered. If only... I truly believe that for a moment he half desired to see his brainchild triumph. The air was hideous with a thousand noises. The glacier wall was cracking and splitting with the noise of thunderclaps. The machines were rearing and banging and crashing. It was a gallant effort. But the towering ice wall was not to be denied. Forward, ever forward, it moved, pushing inexorably the struggling machine before it, piling them up high upon one another, grinding into powder to the front ranks. And to cap it all, the huge overhang, a thousand feet high, was swaying crazily and describing ever greater arcs. Look! I screamed and flung up my arm. Great freight planes were flying wing to wing, head on for the tottering crack, deliberately smashing into the topmost point. Trying to knock it back into equilibrium, said Keston, eyes ablaze, dancing about insanely. But the last suicidal push did not avail. With screams as of a thousand devils, 
and a deafening rending roars. The whole side of the glacier seemed to lean over and fall in a great earth-shattering crescendo of noise. While we watched, fascinated, root to the ground, that thousand feet of glittering wall described a tremendous arc, swinging with increasing momentum down, down, down to the earth it had so long been separated from. The clamoring machines were buried under, lost in a swirl of ice and snow. Only the central station remained, a few moments divined under the swift unrush of its unfleeing foe. With a crash that could have been heard around the world, the uppermost crack struck the station. The giant glacier wall was down. The earth, the sky, the universe was filled with ice, broken, shattered, torn, splintered, vaporized. The ground beneath our feet heaved and tumbled in violent quake. We were thrown heavily, and I knew no more. I weltered out of a consciousness. Kasson was caving my hand and rubbing my forehead with ice. He smiled wanly to find me still alive. Weak and battered, I struggled to my feet. Before me was a wilderness of ice, a new mountain range of gigantic tumbled blocks of dazzling purity. Of the embattled machines, of the central control station, there was no other sign. They were buried forever under hundreds of feet of frozen water. I turned to Kasson and shook his hand. You've won! You've saved the world! Now let's get the prolet and start to rebuild! There was no trace of exultation in Kesson's voice. Instead, he, unaccountably, sighed as we trot up a narrow winding path to the top. Yes, he said half to himself. I've done it, but... But what? I asked curiously. That... Beautiful, wonderful machines I created, he burst forth in sudden patience. To think that it should lie down there, destroyed, a twisted mass of scrap metals and broken glass. End of chapter 16